So this is very important for us who live in the modern world and who live in the world of relationships with other people, work, family, friends, all of that. This emotional business is very messy. And so, you know, I have a, I've had a long history of um, part of my, my process has been uh, trauma, uh, complex trauma from a fairly early age, from the age of 11. Most of it delivered through loss. Uh, my sister was killed in a car accident when I was 11. My girlfriend was killed in a car accident with me. I was hit by a car when I was 18. And I've, had, I've actually had this experience more so than I feel is common of people very, very close to me dying quickly and tragically. Uh, and that, that for me was one of the things that really opened, opened my heart uh, in a way that was mostly painful for many years. So getting these, and I'm sure you've all had these kinds of experiences where something happens and we, we get maybe more <laughs> access to our heart or more access to our emotion than we actually want. Right? And then this is also the nature usually of, of addiction or any kind of behavior is that, is that we need to do something to medicate or to relieve ourselves from emotional distress. And there's a whole range of things that we do. This is the latest. I like to say scrolling through endless feeds of digital garbage, trying to get some relief from some emotional under-the-surface experience. And so that's one of the reasons why this topic is very important to me, is I find it strange, very strange, that the advancements that we've made in our culture, technological advances, medical advances, psychological, neuroscience, the, the things that we've invented and the things that we know so much about, but really very, very little education around emotion. Sort of, we all have sort of agreed to not talk about it. Sort of this social agreement that we've all kind of bought into. Right? And, you know, it's really one of those things that affects you and affects us a lot more than you probably realize. And I find that most people, when they really, when it really gets down to brass tacks, when it gets down to, to, to the, what is it about my experience, whether it's a, a tragic event, a difficult loss, a relationship ends, uh, that those experiences are, are painful in and of themselves, but the events and the pain and the confusion lives on and carries on in the emotional body. In the great work of Viktor Frankl, he has a book on trauma called The Body Keeps the Score. And so we really hold these, these somaticized emotion. Emotion is in the body. It's not really in the mind. And so we carry all this emotional wound, um, unresolved experiences uh, around in our bodies and our emotions. And they often come out sideways. Have you ever overreacted <laughs> towards an event that was, did not warrant the reaction that you gave? And people look at you, what's wrong with you? It's like somebody, uh, when you're really angry and somebody telling you that you're angry doesn't help so much. Well, you're in a good mood. <laughs> it's just like we all know these experiences just so every day and so that's a little bit of, of my setup for this uh, this talk and this I think very important talk I feel like a public education talk for me <laughs> more so than anything else and so I want to talk a little bit about mindfulness because mindfulness has really become a, a tool uh, and, a, and a strategy in a way for people to really learn how to embody their experience. And I want to talk about it really from the secular angle. There's a lot of work around secular mindfulness. Uh, Mindful Schools is a secular mindfulness program. MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. In fact, there's so many mindfulness-based programs now that they just call them MBIs now. Mindfulness-based interventions. And there's like a drop-down menu of those. Because mindfulness has been such a, a, it's such a valuable tool to get us into our direct experience. Mindfulness simply defined or understood as, uh, mostly we think of it as present time awareness, to be present. 
to remember to recognize the present moment experience, to pull the mind out of its rumination of past and future, anxiety, depression, and we have again a whole manual of diagnostic mental disorders associated with cognitive function. Much of that can actually be overcome and worked with within a mindfulness practice. And so I think that there's a tremendous value in, in just the secular domain around mindfulness as, as just a basic therapeutic tool, a tool of self-awareness, of self-exploration, of self-therapy, really understanding that maybe the final frontier is actually in here. It never occurred to me to go inside my experience and have a look around. Right? And so I'm, I'm an a advocate and a proponent. I think that um, the secularization of mindfulness is mostly a good thing. And it allows people to, to do the practice without having to get caught up in this idea of uh, Buddhism or religion or any of that stuff, which for some people is, is problematic. But I also teach uh, mindfulness from the Buddhist tradition. Um, it certainly comes from the Buddhist tradition. There's not much to be said about that. Um, but the interesting, thing, the interesting thing about Buddhism that I think is so uh, important to highlight is, is there's lots of Buddhisms, you might know this. There's lots of varieties, many schools of Buddhism. But the farther back you go into the early Buddhist tradition, even pre-Theravada, like right back to the time and the place of this man, Siddhartha Gautama, the farther back you go, the less religious it feels and looks like. In fact, the early, early Buddhist tradition, Buddhist psychology, uh, worldview, self-view, is very, very rooted in just like present-time psychology. There's not a lot of um, esoteric, I would argue there's actually really no esoteric aspects of early Buddhism. It's just really based on this basic idea that the Buddha discovered, is this idea that we all can buy into is that we, as human beings, we seem to suffer in our own minds in ways that seems dramatically unnecessary. Just the way that we, we suffer and that we relive and we get caught up in, in things that actually aren't currently happening in this moment. We manufacture misery in our own minds. And there's something you can do about that. It's not, it's, not, it's not a fixed system. You're not just stuck with this horrible contraption of your mind and we kind of just go through life trying to do the best we can, hoping to come to some sense of meaning and purpose. But actually there's, there's a way in which the mind, and this is where really I think the science and the, and the contemplative uh, really, really are aligned. Uh, there's actually, you can go to school now and study contemplative neuroscience where they're really looking at meditation practices, early Buddhist, and all Buddhist meditation practices integrated into neuroscience and tracking the benefits of that. And, and they've rested on the basic idea that you, there's actually a lot you can do about your mind and the way that you experience yourself, the way that you experience the world, and the way that you experience and make sense of your emotion, your relationships with other people. It's actually an open system. But, as some of us know who have practiced meditation or mindfulness, it's really very rigorous work. Um, it's not easy. It's this training of our attention is really the kind of root of it. It's the, the, really the most obvious function that the mind performs. And one of the functions that the mind performs in every moment of conscious awareness is attention. We're always paying attention to something. And we have choice over what we pay attention to. And sometimes it seems like we don't. You know, that we get sucked in into this rumination, into this thinking, into this past, into this future, into this narrative. We fall asleep, is the way the Buddha would put it. We fall asleep into the contents of our mind. And we're not in the present moment awareness. We're not here. We're somewhere else. And that's really what, what Dharma practice and Buddhist practice is. It means, Buddha just means to be awake. So that, that's the goal, is to wake up. And you know, we wake up and fall asleep probably hundreds of times every single day. We wake up, we fall asleep, we wake up, we fall asleep. 
And you know, the theory is these short moments of awareness repeated become continuous. So we, we start practicing and we kind of cultivate present time awareness and we get these little like glimpses, right? And, and we bring our attention back to the body or the breath is the most common. And we start to cultivate and we start to train attention. And as we train our attention, this awareness kind of comes online in this region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is an abundance of real estate that we simply don't use. And so by training the attention, bringing ourselves back to the body and the breath over and over again, this kind of expands. And these short moments repeated, they become continuous and we have more moments of being awake. We're more present for things in our life. And this is actually how it is. This is like, you know, the science of mindfulness. It's like, you, it, can't, you, it can't not work for you. It just can't not work. And so there's, there's a way in which a lot of people, and I think are really encouraged by that. People who are skeptic of spirituality or some of these, uh, these ideas that come from the East and from the Buddhist tradition in particular, that the science for a lot of people is enough of a buy-in. Uh, there's a guy named Dan Harris who has a podcast called 10% Happier, and he oftentimes talks about that. And for us in our culture in America, for the most part, I think it's maybe a bit of a generalization, but science is kind of the new religion. <clears throat> if science says it's true, we're more probably likely to believe it than any other of course, that's not true for the entire segment of the <laughs> But we'll politely put that aside for tonight. And so to say a little bit more about that, and we'll do some mindfulness practice, but to say a little bit more about sort of the current, this is really kind of the current landscape of, of mindfulness. And as a field, as a phenomenon, really, um, where maybe 30 years or so, John Kabat-Zinn started mindfulness-based stress reduction, it's really, really, I mean, you go to the health food store, the whole food store, and there's Mindful Magazine in the rack. Like, nobody saw that coming. <laughs> nobody saw that coming. And so that it's really kind of exploded to the point where uh, we've almost rendered the term useless or undefinable. And so it's being used in a number of ways. Some people argue ways that are not really uh, true to the tradition. Um, especially in the, business, in the business sector, around trying to have mindfulness in the workplace so people can like, perform better at their crappy job where they're overworked and underpaid. I don't think that's really the spirit of mindfulness, but that's, <laughs> we do see that as part of it happening. But really, it, it, it turns out I believe that this mindfulness thing is really nothing all that special. It's not, um, it's just, it's just a, a something that sort of came on, it came with your equipment. You know, we're born into these mind-body-human uh, experiences and then we have all this equipment. Some of it's rather faulty. You know, the body gets sick, it gets old, it gets old and it dies ultimately, right? The equipment has an expiration date on it. But also we do have a lot of possibilities that we sort of don't, un we don't unlock these possibilities. We get fixed, we get stuck. In, in our habituation, in our worldview. And this is really where sort of like things like depression, a sense of being stuck, uh, a sense of nihilism, what's it all worth anyway? We're just all gonna get old and die and it's all just a big nothing. And I really believe that, that mindfulness and also the Buddhist <coughs> tradition is really a perspective of optimism and really a positive, uh, hopeful, a grateful outlook on, on the possibilities of the human experience. And to say a bit more about that, one thing that's interesting if you look at sort of East versus West is, is our culture, especially the, the, in the earliest uh, study of things like psychology and, and psychiatry, we were, we're, we've been very focused here in America on sort of what's wrong with people. We have this manual called the DSM-5, which is a diagnostic manual of mental disorders, and it's like this big. And according to the DSM-5, 70% of the people in this room have a mental disorder. <laughs> and this is really where I get this idea, is we really have declared a war uh, against emotion and difficult mental states. And anything, that, anything in our life and our experience that even looks like a struggle, it gets diagnosed, it gets labeled, it gets medicated. And so we, 
Anytime we feel any sense of unpleasantness in our mind or our emotion, we tend to sort of diagnose ourselves as like, there's something wrong. I'm not supposed to be having this experience. Not that I want to go down this road, but the pharmacology industry is not the multi-billion dollar industry it is. Because of this, it's, it's in their best interest for there to be something wrong with you. So we, we, we see in that, and, and also with the opioid crisis, there's, a, there's just a really big war going on against the human struggle. Um, and a lot of it has to do with emotion. But we tend to focus more on the psychological. We have psychological disorders. And if you look closely, what makes a psycholo- what makes a psychological disorder so difficult for the from the first person user experience is often uh, is exacerbated by an emotional there's an emotional engine that sort of drives these things so we don't realize it as much but a lot of times below the surface of conscious awareness the emotion that we're experiencing or suppressing is often driving what's happening in the mind and the cognitive and we've really, we've really overdone that. And so oftentimes when people start practicing mindfulness, we, you know, like I oftentimes like to say, mindfulness is going to put you in touch with your problems a lot faster than it's going to solve them. <laughs> mindfulness is not this silver bullet. You know, just be mindful, like that's sort of how it's sold. Just have the mindfulness thing and it's all going to be, it's all good. And I don't know if anybody who's found that to be true. Mindfulness is just like one bad news information about myself over and over and over again. (laughs) And this is good, though, because in the Buddhist tradition, we can't liberate any aspect of our experience that we cannot bring awareness to. This is encouraging. If If there's no awareness, there will be no liberation. There will be no overcoming. Really, what we use this term, resilience sort of a popular term now. Resilience is the ability to overcome a challenge. But if I don't even know what the challenge is, or I'm in denial about the challenge, or I'm trying to avoid the challenge, or I'm trying to pretend or wish it away or to-do list it away, or whatever your favorite strategy is, scroll it, digitally screen away, we never get a chance to really see what's driving some of this stuff. And so mindfulness and its ability to shine a light, to, 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 bring, to give rise to what it is that's happening in the mind to be able to see, and then to work with it, actually. To work with these aspects of our experience and, and to feel encouraged and to feel motivated and to feel confident that, that we can. And we can. We totally can. There is nothing that you cannot overcome. And so this is like a really interesting time, I think, uh, for us to be in this conversation around, around really around suffering, around mental anguish, around emotional experience, and around the fact and the reality that many of us, you know, find ourselves the world, uh, the, the external demands of living in this world seem to be on the rise. And many of us are overwhelmed, burned out, not enough time, not enough money, not enough, not enough, not enough. And so we, we see, really want to see these, this work or this, whatever you call it, this mindfulness, emotional intelligence, uh, resilience, uh, these experiences as really internal resources that we want to develop. Not that we want to make the difficult things go away. That clearly doesn't work. But really, when we think about like stress, just the basic idea of stress, is it's really this feeling or this perception that I don't have the internal resources to meet the external demands. And I don't know about you, but my life is one external demand after another. And so I want to feel resourced. I want to develop these kind of internal, contemplative, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter what you call it, skills as the neuroscientist Richard Davidson who's done probably more work than anybody in this particular conversation is he's really been pointing out that well-being and happiness and these kinds of things they're skills actually happiness is, some, is a skill 
that you get good at. Well-being is a skill that you can learn. It turns out you can actually teach an old dog new tricks. So I want to just pause there and I want to do some mindfulness practice because I feel it's very, um, what's the word, irresponsible of me to talk about mindfulness without doing any mindfulness practice. And before I do that, is there anybody who's actually never done any guided mindfulness practice before? Don't be shy. So we're going to sit just to let you know, we're going to meditate, we're going to practice this mindfulness business for like maybe 20 minutes. And I will offer very uh, clear instructions on how that works, and, and we'll just have a chance to really, to try it on. Don't, you know, don't take my word for it. Check it out. Come and see for yourself. Um, and so again, just to give you a little bit of a setup of really what, what we're going to work with in this meditation and this mindfulness practice is really primarily attention. It's really trying to bring attention into the objects that I offer. And then also trying to be a little bit aware, uh, recognizing the attitude in which you're doing that. And trying to really have this present time awareness and accompanied by a sense of kindness or a sense of cooperation. That you're willing to work with the mind You don't want to go to war against your mind. You'll lose every time. We actually want to learn how to cooperate with our minds. Experiment with an attitude of curiosity. Questions? I'm going to go on because I'll take questions forever. I like actually doing questions, but that's not what I said I was going to do. And I will take some more questions at the end, actually. So this brings us sort of to the million dollar question and people ask me this all the time. Uh, Why should I be mindful? Why? For what purpose? Right? And so it's a really important question. And I got this question a lot because a lot of the times in my early teaching career, I was, most of the people that I was teaching, most of the people sitting in the room did not want to be in the room. Like, you all came over here. You guys are easy. You guys came here on purpose. But I was, when you're teaching in treatment centers and jails, nobody wants to be in the room. And they don't want to be in the room, they sure as hell don't want to be in the present moment. So you have to create a buy-in. And, and I get a lot of pushback. Well, yeah, okay, like, I don't get it. Why should, why should I do this? What, what, for what purpose? Which really, really, really wants me to bring in the talk, into the talk here, and I really want to be specific about this in this particular conversation, is really what we want is emotional intelligence. We want self-awareness. And so mindfulness is so we can understand, we can actually be present for uh, the difficult experiences in our life, what we would call an emotional episode. And so, you know, many of you probably know the book Daniel Goleman wrote in 1995, with sold 20 million copies, called Emotional Intelligence. And his theory and what he learned and what he discovered, and it changed really the landscape about how we think about intelligence in our society. And what he realized was that uh, when it comes to happiness and well-being, people who are emotionally intelligent are much happier and they do much better in their lives than people who just have high IQs. High IQ was kind of the gold standard in our culture for a long time. Uh, And it actually turns out that having intellectual intelligence, let's call it, it doesn't necessarily contribute to your life in all that much of a meaningful way in terms of happiness and well-being. And a lot of times people with that intelligence say they didn't do good in relationships, uh, they didn't always do good in their jobs, they did bad at managing conflict, they didn't, they didn't do well with other people. And most of life, let's be honest, is dealing with other people. They're everywhere. <laughs> you know? And so that emotional intelligence is really, uh, and I can just say in a very basic way because it's kind of a, a term that's hard to define, it's just being, being able to recognize the emotion that you're having while you're having it. Self-awareness. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm scared. I'm angry. I need to pay attention. I need to be careful right now when I'm angry because when I'm angry, I often do things that I regret later. I should probably be careful what I do, what I say. 
I probably shouldn't talk to the person that I'm angry when I'm angry with them. I should probably wait till I'm not angry before I talk to them about why I'm angry with them. It's not just, there's a whole range, there's actually 12 competencies they talk about in emotional intelligence. But again, this is why mindfulness is the key. Without the mindfulness, everything I'm talking about, game, it's not, it's not even going to happen. If you don't have the self-awareness piece, uh, so I, like mindfulness is so good because mindfulness gets you into the room of, of, of actual real change and transformation in your life. It gets you in the room. It gets you in the game. And then what you do from there is dependent on a, a whole range of other skills. As one of my teenage uh, youth uh, students I worked with for a long time in juvenile detention hall, he would say, mindfulness is like, it's like dribbling basketball. It's like life is like basketball. Mindfulness is dribbling. You have to be able to dribble to play the game. You have to. But you, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you need to do. But if you can't dribble, you can't even play. Right? So, we, so we have to understand that we, I think it's very important that we need to be clear about what purpose we're developing mindfulness for and understanding that it's not going to solve all my problems. It's not, gonna, it's not a silver bullet. It's, it's one skill and a whole range of skills that I want to develop. It's a very preliminary and very important. But we don't want to put all our eggs in the mindfulness basket and think that if we just do that, that that's going to necessarily have that big of an impact on the way that we operate, our, our well-being and happiness. Make sense? So, you know, he wrote this book, Emotional Intelligence, and, you know, nobody really picked up the ball and ran with it. Everybody just sort of agreed, oh, this is a good book, and, and, he, and it seems to be true. Uh, but, you know, people just kind of went on with their messy emotions and didn't really do much with it or about it. Um, until um, there was a, a book Daniel Goleman also wrote in the year 2000, um, there was a book written called Destructive Emotions. And this book, Destructive Emotions, came out of a meeting uh, that was in Dharamsala, India, a meeting that was organized by the Dalai Lama, who has actually been one of the people I've been very um, inspired by lately around his work around secularity and really trying to demystify the, the meditative experience as sort of the world's leading, he's sort of the Pope of Buddhism, right? And he's all like, you guys got to stop doing this Buddhism thing. <laughs> so he's a kind of an interesting figure that way. And what he did is he invited, he invited the top scientists in the world, neuroscientists, psychologists, and Buddhist meditators. And they had a big uh, conference meeting in, in, in India for many, many days. And they, they were, the topic was emotion and destructive emotion. Because one thing that the Dalai Lama recognized was that actually it was our relationship to our emotional life that was causing basically all of the problems in the world. You know, in Buddhism we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, that, that, it's, these, that it's, it's the destructive things that we do to ourselves and to each other and to this planet when we're caught in the grip of emotion. And that he wanted to develop a program or he wanted to develop a way that was very secular that would help people better manage their emotion. And so this has kind of been going on for, for about 20 years. And so this idea of, of emotions being destructive or constructive. So I'm going to skip around a little bit and not follow my sheet, which is very common for me. And I really want to uh, talk about this, um, this idea of destructive emotions. And really, when I, when I teach this and talk about this, I'm always profound, I'm always blown away by how much people don't actually think about them this way. But we really, if you hear me say one thing tonight, hear me say this, we have got to get away from this language of positive and negative emotions. It's really, really not helpful that there's positive emotions and that there's negative emotions. Emotions have no moralistic, positive, negative, they don't have that, they're very benign. Emotions are just emotions. What we want to recognize and the way we want to view emotions is that we either have a destructive relationship to the emotion or we have a constructive relationship to the emotion. And a destructive relationship to emotion is that when I'm caught in the grips of that emotion, I, I'm harming myself or other people. 
I'm not contributing to my own well-being and I'm not contributing to the well-being of others is the criteria for what makes an emotion destructive. In a constructive relation, a constructive emotion uh, is the opposite. It's when we're caught in the grips of emotion, we're able to do and to say and to act and to behave in a way that promotes our well-being and that of others. Does that make sense? Isn't constructive like positive and then destructive negative? We got to get away from that language. And you could maybe say that. that. Semantics? It's semantics, yeah. Yeah, they really don't like this word because what happens is and we think we start thinking like, well, anger is a negative emotion, right? Most people would think that anger is a negative emotion. Anger is a very important emotion. All of our emotions are important. So the reason why they set up this criteria is because, first of all, it causes all kinds of problems when we start thinking of, well, and then we start thinking all the emotions, well, sadness is no good, and fear is no good, and anger is no good, and shame is no good. All I have is negative emotions. Joy, that's the only positive one. This whole emotional business sucks. And then that very destructive attitude. So it's actually, when we're caught in the grips of emotion, it's, it's sort of what we do, what we say, what we think, how we behave, that gives rise to whether it's constructive or destructive. So we would say it's our relationship to the emotion that actually is what's important. What is my relationship to anger? Do you have a constructive relationship with anger? You probably have mixed, right? Sometimes you do okay. But we have to really kind of run that list of understanding that um, our attitude and our, and our experience with emotion and that they're actually here and to dip maybe to dip back a little bit into science and where this work comes from is from a, a, a scientist named Paul Ekman uh, who is probably one of the world's most well-respected leading researchers around emotion. And he actually developed this idea that there's, there's universal emotion. So if we look at evolutionary psychology and we look at human evolution, if we go with that lens, which is a pretty, you know, trustworthy uh, scientific way, is that what happens is that emotion uh, came online. We developed emotions as human beings for very, very specific reasons, so that they all have a role and they have a purpose and they have a function. And really they were developed out of our survival. So we, as we evolved, we kind of got more uh, more emotions came online, and we've kind of inherited those. So as all of us here in this room, we've, we've all inherited the legacy of our evolution, and we all have the same emotions, what they call universal emotion. And so what makes the criteria for a universal emotion is an emotion that has the same facial expression, like anger. Every human being, whether you were born in Sweden, Bozeman, Montana, or if you were from the aboriginal tribes of Australia, when you get angry, you make this facial expression. It's universal. It has a, a, a universal emotion has a facial expression. It has a common physiology. Blood runs to the fists. The vagal nervous system lights on fire. Anger has a very intense feeling emotion. And all of us experience it the same way physiology and our physiology. Of course, some of us have access to them and some of us don't, and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later. But what they recognize is that these emotions came online for a very, very specific reason. And we really got to get out of this game of trying to get rid of the negative ones, right? Because one thing that we certainly know about emotion is that you cannot selectively numb. <laughs> you know, because we do that, right? We want to we feel the good ones and we want to get rid of the bad ones, right? And that's kind of the game that we're in. And that, that you're, you're just going to lose that game. And so we want to be able to recognize that, you know, in, in one thing about emotion that I really love and I really appreciate is of all the systems I've encountered, it's a very fair system. The emotional system is completely fair game. Meaning that either you have access to your emotions or you don't. And we have, all of us are very, very different. Some people in this room probably have really, really easy access to anger. Some of you probably don't have much access to anger, but maybe you have a lot of access to fear or access to sadness. And because of our conditioning and our attachment and the way we brought in the world and what we learned about emotions, 
we adapt in a way. And we wonder why we don't get along with each other, right? It's like, you know, our, our emotions are constantly interacting with each other all of the time. We have no idea. This motor neurons where we actually take on, if we're, if we're within 10 feet of another person, and if I'm within 10 feet and I can see somebody's face, well, if they're having an emotional experience, it maps right onto my system. I, can, I, can, I feel that in my physiology. I probably don't know that. I don't recognize it, but it's actually happening. And so I want to just read a little bit of stuff from you guys because I think this is uh, important. Um, so it's important to see that emotion is uh, not a thing that exists, but really an event that occurs. So we're not emotional all the time. You know, we don't, we're not always emotional. Emotion isn't present in every moment. But what we have are emotional episodes. And so to really kind of give you a, a good definition of emotion... An emotion is a process that happens when we sense something to our welfare is occurring, something important to our welfare is occurring. So anytime we are in an experience where something that's important to our welfare or our well-being, we perceive it as occurring, emotions arise as sort of a self-protective survival mechanism in that experience. This process is influenced by our appraisal of the situation and has a significant impact on the body, mind, and behavior. So when something like anger comes into the system, it, it, it affects every aspect of it. It affects my physiology, my body sensations. It affects my mind, how I think, my perception, and it also affects my behavior. And it happens really quick. Much of the time, for most people, our emotions serve us well by mobilizing us to deal with what is most important in life and providing us with many different kinds of enjoyment. The most common emotions occur when we sense, rightly or wrongly, that something that seriously affects our welfare, for better or worse, is happening or about to happen. Emotions have evolved to prepare us to be constantly and unconsciously on the lookout for important signals in the environment to deal quickly and unconsciously with vital events in our lives. Although emotions are informed by beliefs, values, and thoughts, they are different from these mental processes. We need to learn what is unique about emotions and what their purpose, function, and key characteristics are. To explore these questions, we can investigate what happens when we are lost in the grip of emotion. So a lot of emotional intelligence is really actually exploring uh, our emotional landscape and our emotional experience. And so this is really one of, the, one of the programs that I teach that I want to talk about a little bit is a program called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which was actually really what came out of that conference uh, in India in the year 2000. Uh, they've been working on it for many, many years. There is actually a program now called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which really merges mindfulness, contemplative Buddhist practices with the experience of emotion. So it's kind of this dharma and science way of trying to navigate the system. And the great thing about emotions that I find to be so great, when I hear like everything I'm saying, I just totally calm down. I'm like, it's totally not my fault. It's evolution's fault. <laughs> There's really nothing I can do about it. Everybody has the same ones. It's all fair. You know, and, and it's really kind of important to see them more from this lens because it's not uh, that subjective, actually. It's that this, is kind of, this kind of came with your equipment. And it's not, they're not going anywhere. Let me tell you, if there's another thing you're hearing me say tonight, emotions are here to stay. You're not going to get rid of them. You'll try... And you'll do very bizarre and strange things to regulate them, but you will not get rid of them. And so this brings us back into this kind of idea, this paradigm of do I have a constructive relationship or a destructive relationship with my emotions? So I want to there, go through these because I think it's important for me to um, talk about that there's basically like what they call it, there's eight universal emotions. Anybody ever see the uh, cartoon Inside Out? Totally see that cartoon. Everybody, in fact, you, you guys should like screen it here at the Dharma Center. It's totally based on the science of emotion. In that cartoon, they only deal with five, I believe. 
And so really we kind of break them down in, into categories of this kind of really basic, the basic ones and there's ones that are more complex. And the basic emotions are anger, fear, sadness, and joy, which I believe are all in that movie. Mm-hmm. Anger, fear, sadness, and joy. Is anybody familiar with these experiences? <laughs> right, you can probably self-diagnose right now. You're probably doing like, which ones am I have constructive? Which ones am I destructive? Right, so let's start. So anger. So, so anger. Um, why do we have anger? Why did nature and evolution give us anger? It gave us anger because what anger does is, is it fights to remove an obstacle. And if you have any obstacles in your life that you want to remove or overcome, you're going to need to use the anger emotion to do that. Anybody have any obstacles in their life they'd like to overcome? <laughs> it's going to take a little bit of anger to do that. It's going to take constructive anger. And some of us have, so some of us like have too much and not enough to sort of hyper and hypo. Some people get really, really angry really, really quick for all kinds of reasons that don't seem relevant. And that would be a destructive kind of explosive anger. Right? We know these people. Uh, and it happens. <laughs> And so there's too much of the hyper anger. But some people actually, you can, you can have not enough anger can actually be destructive. People who are conflict avoidant, people who get in relationships where they get taken advantage of, they end up doing things that they don't want to do, they have poor boundaries, they can't advocate for themselves, they can't advocate for their needs in relationships and jobs and work. That's also destructive. They don't, they're not able to use the anger emotion in a way. Maybe they learned in their household when they grew up that anger wasn't allowed. Anybody grew up in a household like that? <laughs> anger is not allowed. You shouldn't be angry. We grew up with our parents telling, you shouldn't feel the emotion that you're feeling. A lot of us have that message deeply imprinted in our psyche. And we have to come to terms with that. Right? So we have to kind of see that, you know, Anger has a purpose. Now, anger, anger can be the root of something like compassion. Why do we even get angry? Well, we get angry because we care. When something that I care about is being belittled, attacked, or threatened, I get angry. And that's a good thing. Because that's really the nature of compassion. We could make an argument that really what comp- compassion is, is sort of radical, constructive anger. <laughs> or it can look like hatred which is, very, which is a very destructive form of anger you see what I mean, you see how nuanced this is anger is not the problem it's your relationship to anger and whether you have too much of it or not enough of it and you, you, know, you can really figure this out pretty quickly fear fear is probably the oldest one, we probably got that one first and fear flights to flee from danger it attempts to escape a threat when something, when, a, when my system comes online, anything that I appear to be a threat, fear comes online and says, get out of here, escape. <clears throat> Anger and fear are kind of like in traumatic stress, fight and flight. And a lot of times, I don't know about you, but we have a lot of fear about a lot of things that ain't even happening right now. Which usually uh, shows up in the cognitive uh, of anxiety. That kind of, that's what anxiety is, is a... <clears throat> A chronic sense of fear of, of, of something's going to go wrong. Tomorrow I have to do all these things and I'm and laying in bed and I'm thinking of the 400 things that are going to go wrong tomorrow. Anxiety. Destructive fear. Living, having too much access to fear. Which is very common, I think, in our culture, which is really what anxiety is about. I'm afraid of everything. I'm not going to be okay. My kids aren't going to be okay. I'm not going to make enough money. I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. I'm not going to be able to keep my job. I'm going to lose my job. The economy is going to shit. Donald Trump's in the White House. Oh my God, what are we going to do? And really, our culture and certainly our media loves to capitalize on the fear emotion. Or we can not have enough of fear. We can be risk takers and risk seeking behaviors and doing things that are very dangerous. Sadness, my, one of my favorite emotions. My two favorite emotions are sadness and shame. But I'm not going to get into that tonight. Come tomorrow if you want to hear about sadness and shame. Uh, sadness is a very, very important emotion. It's also the emotion that lasts the longest. So it's the one that we typically maybe want to avoid often because it's really long. 
is it's sort of the minor key of life. You know, and we don't like it so much. But sadness is about reassuring. And it's actually the reason why we have sadness is it's to elicit a connection with another human being. It's to elicit connection from other people, especially in being able to create connection when we're in the face of loss. So we experience a big loss in our life. We feel sadness. And what sadness is telling you is, is to go to somebody. Connect with somebody. Reassurance. It's a very social emotion. It's always about another person. But again, if we don't do that, this is where sadness becomes things like depression. We isolate in our sadness. and We, we, don't, we have a very destructive relationship to sadness because we don't elicit, elicit connection from other people. We avoid other people when we're sad which is the last thing that you want to do. And, you know, do we even have somebody, do we have people in our lives that we feel comfortable enough with that we can even do that? Because a lot of times uh, people, if I, if I don't have access to my sadness and you come to me with your sadness, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to reciprocate. I'm not going to be able to have empathy or compassion. I'm not going to be able to sit with you in that. So sadness is so important. And, and, and we can have destructive sadness where we just wallow too much and we, we live in a grief-stricken experience and we're, we're just caught in that constant sorrow and, and the negativity and the worldview that the, you know, the world is a bad, horrible place and I'm a bad, horrible person and it's all just a big nothing. It's too much. You're stuck in it. Or we can have no access to it. And we can kind of become cold and indifferent and kind of macho and, you know, this kind of uh, very common in the male figure. Men do not typically have great access to sadness, which I'm sure you can think of many examples of men in your life who don't have access to sadness. Anger, men tend to do the anger one pretty good. So to some degree there's a social conditioning around uh, gender and emotion. But that's a whole... Another thing. And then joy is also like sadness. Joy is about deeping, deepening connection with others and with yourself. Joy. Right? Some people have a very destructive relationship to joy. Some people are scared of joy. There's a, a researcher named Mario Martinez who wrote a book, uh, uh, Biocognition, and he talks about that for many people, especially in America, joy is a horrifying emotion. We literally do not know what to do with it. We aren't able to access a sense of joy. Either we feel unworthy of it, we feel scared that it's going to go away and we don't want to have it, we don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to feel joy because it's going to leave and then I'm going to be back to my usual terrible self again. Right? We, don't, we don't participate in that. We don't participate in the joy of other people, which is really what this... Uh, Mudita practice in Buddhism we talk about, appreciative joy, is being able to participate in the joy of other people, deepen the sense of connection with them and with ourselves. So we can have this destructive joy by basically not allowing ourselves to, to, to access it. And you might think, well, why would I do that? That sounds really weird. I wouldn't do that. But you probably do, actually. And, and sort of a Another way it can have too much, it can kind of appear as a type of mania almost. Mm-hmm. Where people are on there, there's too excited all the time. And so those are anger, fear, sadness, joy, are kind of the ones that you think about mostly, mostly like everyday emotions that if you ask people to give you a list of emotions, people usually come with these ones. The other universals are a little bit more subtle, which are disgust, contempt, shame, and surprise. And disgust is also in the Inside Out movie. And so disgust is to get rid of something poisonous or harmful. Pretty obvious. You know what's interesting? You know what the facial expression for disgust is? What do you do when you pull the milk out of the fridge to make sure it's good? You go, you mean, yeah, that's really like evolution. You know, as creatures, we used to smell the food before we eat it to make sure it wasn't poisonous or harmful. So if you see someone do that, they're, they're disgust. 
They might not know that they're doing it or why they're doing it, but that's the facial expression. And it's to remove something harmful. Now, disgust is interesting because it can be aimed at any sense experience. I can be disgusted by sights, sounds, tastes, colors. Disgust is an emotion that can be experienced at every sense door. Right? We can be disgusted by uh, people's behavior. We can be disgusted by the half-eaten sandwich that somebody left in the break room. And it's there, it's, trying, it's kind of telling us to, to remove ourselves from that situation. And where this can become very destructive is a, a lot of times in, in, like, uh, in really uh, in intimate relationships where maybe your people are in a destructive relationship with somebody and the other person is, is uh, doing behavior that would normally be deemed as disgust, inappropriate, harmful. And you're not able to remove yourself from that relationship. You're enmeshed, you're entangled in, in maybe an, an abusive relationship or a one-sided relationship because there's not, you're not able to, to really remove yourself from that harmful experience because there's, there's not enough disgust. Or we can have too much of it and just avoid everything. The one that's actually the next one that I want to talk about, contempt, which is a very, I could talk about contempt all night. Contempt is uh, considered by Paul Ekman to be the most destructive emotion because he says that he can't understand any situation where contempt can be constructive. And actually, when you think about the political landscape in our culture, it's not really about anger, it's about contempt. Contempt is a very, very destructive emotion. If you read any uh, books on marriage or family counseling, anybody who's done that kind of work, once contempt enters the relationship, it's pretty much over. Once you have contempt for the other person. And so contempt is, is about asserting superiority. It's, it's, a, it's a devaluing of the other person. A, a type of way in which we, we assert a type of superiority. A sort of better than attitude. And it's very, very subtle because unlike anger, which is really has a lot of physiology, and, and you know, really easy to tell when you're anger, uh, phys- the physiology of contempt is very, very subtle and doesn't have a lot of strong, it's this. um, (laughs) This fucking guy over here. That's contempt. I also believe the the biggest thing that we, contempt, the eye roll. God, this again, here he goes again on this rant about contempt. You know, like, and that's it. And it's very, very solid, very, very sneaky. And it can also be very pleasant. That's the other thing why this negative, positive business is no good. When we talk about uh, Buddhism, we talk about Vedana, pleasant or pleasant neutral. It does, it's not a good barometer because sometimes destructive emotions can be very pleasant. We can find a lot of pleasure in anger. We can find a lot of pleasure in contempt. It can be almost become insidious where we enjoy the devaluing of others. You know, and, I, and I've seen this a lot actually very disappointingly in Buddhist communities that I've been a part of where it's like they can kind of think that we're the superior uh, religion or we understand things more and kind of look down on people who have a religious faith of other varieties and this sort of contemptuous. And it's very destructive because it's the, it's the ultimate creator of self and other and better than. Those people. You know those people? Do you even know any of those people? Have you met them? <laughs> right, and so it's very destructive because it doesn't, it doesn't really, um, and, and there's a theory, and I don't know if it's true, but there's this idea that contempt has actually passed its sell-by date. Actually, we, we don't need it anymore. But once it came into our evolution, we can't get rid of it. It actually, uh, and there's even an argument to say that we got contempt by accident. It was kind of nature screwed up and gave us contempt. And it, and it causes so much problems in the human world. So much of the world's suffering and, and racism and sexism and global deterioration of our environment, a lot of it is actually rooted in contempt, greed. And, and a lot of these, in, in this social movement that I think is so important around like, you know, the, the sexism and the racism and diversity and inclusivity uh, and, and bias, 
is oftentimes a subtle type of contempt that we don't even know, judging other people. And so when we look at disgust and contempt, one of the things that's really important is I can be disgusted by your behavior and not have contempt for you. Does that make sense? And that's what we want to be able to do. Hey, what you're doing is actually not okay. You know, and we can kind of hold that boundary. It's not okay to talk to me like that. You know, it's not okay for you to do that. And I can still, because I value the relationship, I don't have to contempt you. We can work it out. And for most people, that's a radically advanced skill. To be able to have disgust for someone's behavior and not have contempt for them and value the relationship enough to say, to actually negotiate and to talk about it. But we are mostly are conflict avoidant a lot of times in our culture and we just we would just rather devalue and just remove ourselves from the scenario because we don't want to manage the conflict. I hope that sounds familiar. And so it was there to assert superiority in the tribal sense, it was there to maintain social norms. So like if you were living, and one of the things they say is that once a tribe hit about 50 people, contempt becomes actually ineffective. So if we're in a tribal community, there's 50 of us living together, we all need each other to survive, and, and I break into the, to, the, uh, to the food shelter at night, you need all the raisins and nobody has any raisins, then my community, my tribe would contempt me. Like, you can't do that. You know? They would, you know and, and that would kind of maintain a type of social norm. But past a group of 50, it doesn't really do much. So what do we do with it? You know, so really, what we, this is why awareness and mindfulness, so we want to be able to recognize when we have contempt in our mind and actually disengage from it. This is why things like meta practice, loving kindness, meditation is so good, and compassion practices are so good. And even the research now around metta that Richard Davidson's been doing is actually what metta, metta this loving kindness, this well-wishing for selves and others, and what it does right away, beneficially, is it starts to deteriorate and undermine implicit bias. You know, this kind of nonverbal way in which we can kind of have this judgment and bias towards people. And a lot of times it's towards ourselves. Loving kindness for ourselves. This sort of self-contempt which can kind of manifest as a type of shame. We start to wish well to ourselves and may I be happy, may I be at ease, may I, you know, this kind of well-wishing. It's training the mind to disengage. So not only am I disengaging from the destructive experience, I'm actually cultivating the opposite. So so much of Buddhist practice, whether it's mindfulness or the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, equanimity, uh, gratitude, they're really about cultivating uh, the opposite. We want to do both simultaneously. We want to develop these uh, modes of operating while we understand and unhook from our destructive emotions. And let's, last but certainly not least, shame. <laughs> Everybody's favorite emotion. Anybody see the Brene Brown TED Talk on shame? If you haven't seen it, you should watch it because it's brilliant. And shame is, a, shame also, I will say, I put it in here, shame is actually not a universal emotion, although it should be. And the main reason is it, scientifically it doesn't meet the criteria because two reasons. One is there's no universal facial expression for shame because we don't want anybody to know that we're feeling it. <laughs> On, uh, the other universals have a universal facial expression. And also people who have really dark skin, dark pigment skin, their face, they, they don't get red in their face or it doesn't, you can't see it because their skin's dark. Where people who have really light skin, you know, your face turns red, you know, kind of that experience of shame. Shame is the experience, it kind of starts at the bottom of your feet, it runs slowly up your back, up the back of your legs, over your, up over your shoulder, and it feels like somebody's putting a hood over your head, and you get a lot of sensation right here. Oh man, shame. And you know, we, we don't talk about shame so much for probably obvious reasons. And shame loves it for you to not talk about it. You know, as Brene Brown, Brown says, you know, if you put shame in a Petri dish and you feed it silence and secrecy and judgment, 
it grows and grows and grows and grows. <laughs> but if you feed it awareness and empathy and compassion, uh, it, it actually, uh, it dies. You know, and shame is a very, very important emotion for a couple of reasons. Uh, what it also did was it, um, it was really to enforce group cohesion. So in the analogy of the person in the tribe eating the food, uh, shame was trying to uh, keep us from doing things uh, of that nature. In Buddhist psychology, um, it's called one of the guardians of the world, Hirian Otapa, uh, shame and moral dread. It's actually, from, from the Buddhist psychology lens, it's shame is called the guardian of the world because shame can actually act as a type of moral compass, which is a very interesting perspective on shame. Shame is sort of kind of guiding you to not do certain things. You know, I'm sure we all have a list of behaviors that we don't do because we would feel that they were shameful. Or maybe we've been in that experience where we've engaged in behaviors that made us feel shame. And it can kind of work when it's constructive. When we have a constructive relationship to shame, we can have empathy for ourselves, we can have compassion for ourselves, and we can not engage in behaviors that we feel shame about later. Destructive behavior. So shame is oftentimes um, around behavior. And then in its intense form is what I call existential shame, where we just sort of feel like we're existentially bad and wrong, which is its most sort of destructive form that people get caught in. So I do want to take some questions. I want to figure out where I want to end. And so the reason why we want to be able to do this, actually, um, is first of all, it's really in your best interest to, to develop this emotional intelligence, emotional awareness, because it's affecting you whether you think it is or not. At least that's what the scientists tell me. Believe me, y'all, I really tried to freak, I really tried to fight against everything I've told you tonight. <laughs> I really have. I really tried to beat the system, and I was unable to do it, but I did give it a sincere attempt. <laughs> I was unable to do it. Is actually what it's about. Is one of the one of the key things we want to develop in these emotional episodes that we have, is we want to be able to choose what we do or say when we've become emotional. So we get angry. We we recognize in our body. We've developed the mindfulness of the body enough to know that um, anger has arisen in my body. I'm very very angry right now. I, I need to be careful what I do or say. We want to have choice. Emotional freedom is all about choice. Being able to choose what you do in that experience from an authentic place that feels very true to you. Because how many times have you done something because you felt like other people wanted you to do it or it was a social norm? Or we do a lot of things in this world based on criteria that's very inauthentic to our sense of what's important to us, to, to what's core to our values. And so we're able to actually make choice that's based on our values, which is really the nature of integrity. We really can have this, this authentic is such a buzzword now, but really having this authentic or genuine happiness. And that's really the goal of this work is to really develop a genuine type of happiness where we're able to live in the world of emotions and other people's emotions in a way that we have equanimity. We, we were able to understand these emotions and we have some balance, this emotional balance. It doesn't mean, actually what it means is that you're going to have more access to these emotions. And that's a really actually a good thing. You want to have access to your emotions. You want to actually access all of the emotions I just talked about. Because if you can recognize the emotion, you can access the emotion, you can understand the emotion, you can manage the emotion. And then we're able to move in the direction of our lives that we want to move in, rather than succumbing to our habituation, to our default actions, to our modes, to our kind of ways in which we've dealt with emotion. And so, to circle back, this is why I think you should practice mindfulness. Is so that you can learn how to really navigate the landscape of your emotional experience in a way that feels constructive. And that feels confident, like, hey, I can do this. And I will assure you that a lot of it is going to be unpleasant. 
coming to terms with your emotional limitations is one of the most unpleasant things I've had to do. <laughs> but it's just this radical honesty to just be like, okay, like, this really came with your, it's in the equipment. You were born into the equipment, it's in there. It's hardwired. And for me, that makes me feel motivated. It makes me feel a sense of forgiveness and a sense of compassion for myself. It's like, okay, like, totally not my fault. None of it my fault. My responsibility, totally my responsibility, what I do about my emotional life, but not my fault. And totally worth it. Totally worth it. So I think I'll stop there. I could go on and on. 